Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening, everyone. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to this edition of Bring It On, where a multiple award-winning show, now in our 15th year, as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And good evening also, I'm William Hosea, a self-proclaimed proven fighter in Indiana politics. John Zodi wants to listen to the citizens of Monroe County and get things done at the State House. He promises to be a strong voice and help all Hoosiers believe in their state and their future once again. On November 14th, John Zodi, chair of the Indiana Democratic Party, announced he would seek the office for Indiana's 40th district in the state Senate in 2020. The announcement comes following the news from State Senator Mark Stoops that he would not seek re-election next year. In his profile, John shares that he is a 20-year resident of Bloomington, a graduate of Indiana University, and he knows how Monroe County's vibrant diversity has helped us to thrive. Originally from Martinsville, John plans to work across the district with lifelong and new citizens, community leaders, and students to make sure all Hoosiers have the advocate they need at the State House to protect the unique character of the place we all call home. So during the next hour, John is uh, here to share his aspirations, his platform, and observations on current political affairs. And with that, John Zodi, welcome to Bring It On. Thanks for having me. Should we uh, refer to you as... Um, Senator, Senator to be John Zodi or Democratic <laughs> Chair John Zodi, just John's or just fine. John. Just okay, John's fine. all yeah. right. <laughs> Thanks for asking, Clarence. So, just so uh, our listeners, we we want to start off with giving the listeners a chance to kind of know mm-hmm. John Zodi the man. Well, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, family life? I know you just had a. Uh, in addition to the family recently, or am I like three or four years behind? No, he'll be two in March, okay. so you're not okay. too just far two behind years there. Behind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just two years. Yeah. I'm like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for asking, and thanks for having me on tonight um, as we start out the campaign here. I, um, you know, as you mentioned, I have lived in Bloomington for almost 20 years. I grew up in Martinsville, up in Morgan County, um, and came to school down here for uh, my undergraduate uh, degree, and then uh, moved to Indianapolis and uh, worked at the State House, and that's where I really I started in public service um, here in Bloomington with internships in, in city and county government, and got that interest, and was a, uh, a SPIA student, uh, now known as O'Neill, uh, School of Public and Environmental Affairs, um, but uh, but uh, was did my undergraduate there, and then moved to Indianapolis to work at the State House and the administrations of Governor Franco Bannon and Joe Kernan, and uh, that's really where I learned about a lot of issues in the state that uh, I think are still prevalent. Uh, mm-hmm. The first of which, uh, and the most probably most impactful for me, was early childhood education, and so uh, really. Took that experience uh, once we left the state house. Um, went to work at Ivy Tech uh, here in Bloomington. Did workforce development and civic engagement programming out there, and then I was the development officer for the campus. And then worked for Congressman Baron Hill when he was in Congress as his district director and his chief of staff. And then. Um, Worked for President Obama on his re-election campaign in 2012 out of the Chicago headquarters and was the regional political director for this area. So Indiana and, and eight other states plus Washington, D.C. So had the political responsibilities for those uh, states. And then I became chair of the Democratic Party here in Indiana. And um, uh, 
a lot of folks would say, uh, how, did a, how did a guy from Martinsville become chair of the Democratic Party? And I, I That's just what said, I was going to say. <laughs> well, I grew up in a family that they didn't uh, push me one way or the other. We weren't really political. Um, my grandparents, who were uh, just my most favorite people in the whole world, were engaged. Uh, but they were Republicans, uh, you know, and my grandpa was a farmer and my grandma worked at the bank and for USDA for a long time. And just were uh, the most decent people I've ever met. And so you kind of just, they were... They were service oriented, right? Not political, but service oriented. My, you know, grandpa was a Gideon involved in the church. My grandma was in a sorority and just uh, was the treasurer at the at the food pantry in town. And um, and my parents just encouraged it, right? So uh, didn't encourage Democrat or Republican, but they encouraged my interest in politics. And you know, since I was a little kid, I wanted to uh, learn more about that. And um, they went to college for that, uh, and so uh, was able to do that. It's I've been really blessed that I've been able to uh, do what I thought I wanted to do. And, and when you're a kid and you don't really know what government, what you're going to do, you like politics and you like reading about politics, but you don't really know what it's going to turn into. And so I've been really fortunate that I've been able to actually do that uh, and uh, really have been able to work for some great people and work on some great issues uh, here in, in South Central Indiana and statewide over the last seven years um, as chair. And that, of course, is not the end of the show. Uh, we're just working through some audio issues here. Um, we'll give our engineer a second. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. <laughs> okay, it's Monday. <laughs> um, and, you know, what it was, John, is that you gave such a, uh, a comprehensive response that there was nothing else to talk about. <laughs> so we're done. So, so we went to the outro. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, we're going to force it back sure. so we could talk a little yeah. bit more. Uh, uh, let me let me ask you this: Was there a moment? Um, I mean, you had the, these these great Hoosier values instilled in you as a young child. Um, you have role models who just really, in a lot of respects, epitomized service mm-hmm. uh, to you. Was there an event? Was there a moment that flipped a switch on in you that says, "I'm going to run"? For an office, or I'm going to serve the community as a X or a Y or a Z. Sure, I will say there was a moment where I sort of the switch flipped, where I understood what all this meant a little more. So in high school, there's a program; it's been around for a long time through the YMCA called uh, YMCA Youth in Government, and it's high school students uh, do a program. Um, and in Indiana, we go to the state house for the weekend, and we it's a mock legislature and a mock state government, basically for the weekend. And I was the speaker of the house; uh, I was elected. You each 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 local chapter uh, elects students to go from their um, their district, and I was elected speaker. And um, there was a but, you know, I grew up in Martinsville and, and uh, you know, had traveled, and but I didn't know a lot outside of what mm-hmm. issue, you know, public policy issues were not something that were, you know, I've, I was a kid, right? But there was a, a, a girl from a school or from a district up around Warsaw, Indiana, and she came to, one of her bills was to better protect the safety around railroad crossings. So you know, not all when crossings have the bars that come down yeah, to stop right, traffic. Right. She had known a number of people who'd been killed because they didn't have mm. those. And so one of her mock mock bills, right, yeah. was for this. And that was issue I didn't even wasn't even a thing. It wasn't on my radar, right? The trains running through Martinsville were I don't it wasn't necessarily a dormant rail line, but we didn't right. see too many trains coming through town, and that was on a side of town I didn't live on. And so that I always took that as like that's where I started to understand uh, sort of other perspectives and, and uh, right. you know, when you're looking at policy issues. And so that was, you know, almost, uh, was more than 25 years ago. 
And so then I worked to work in state government and you just see the, um, the breadth of issues around the state. And so that was probably a policy switch at a young age. But as far as running, um, I've gone back and forth, quite frankly. I was a staffer for a long time. I've, this is the first uh, time I've ever run for office. I've thought about it and mm-hmm. had made a few moves <laughs> here and there. But this is the first time I've run for public office, except for state convention delegate, which is um, something that you do every couple of years. But first public office to, to serve a constituency. But I've got a lot of experience in constituent services, working in Congress, working in the State House. Um, so I have a, I think I've got the experience that helps do that. But um, it's been a series of things over the years, um, and which I could go into for another hour probably. But uh, that was one experience early on because I didn't grow up in a political family, as I said. Right, and that right. was one thing where I said, okay, this is what the, all of this is. You got somebody you didn't know coming from somewhere else in the state telling you about an issue you had no idea anything about, but it had really impacted this person's life. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you said you've never run for office before, mm-hmm. but you've also served as uh, president of Indiana Young Democrats, uh, vice chair in Monroe County. That's right. This is a few years back. Right. So you know the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've been doing, you've been talking to a few people. I, I guess you could call it a listening tour up to this point, right? So yep. what what are some of the things that, that you're hearing uh, that people want you to try and work on? Yeah. When, if you, well, we'll just say when you get to the state house. Thank you. Well, I think it's, they want somebody who will listen. Um, Bloomington is a, a place where it's, it's a very active community. There is a dialogue about every issue in the community. Um, certainly we've seen that on city council this week with the UDO and, and there's just, there's always a debate about issues. And I think that's good. And I, but that doesn't mean you always agree. And I think, you know, we, we see, uh, in this, Look, this uh, this community is is uh, represented by Democrats, and so Democrats don't always agree, and which is something I have experience with uh, being chair of the party. But I have the ability to listen and understand where other people are coming from, and be able to empathize with their view. And I think that's really important. I think people want to see um, a continuation of some of the stuff that uh, that Mark Stoops has worked on. I think the um, issue of education tomorrow, we're going to see thousands of teachers go uh, be at the state house to talk about red teacher pay. Yep, mm-hmm. teacher pay with Red for Ed. Um, and that's not just pay. It's, you know, there's, there's uh, professional development requirements. There's school funding overall. Uh, that is definitely something. I've got uh, meetings later this week with, with folks to talk about housing, uh, about criminal justice, about, about public education. So I'm starting, I'm, con- I'm continuing that listening tour, as you mentioned, William, because I think there are a lot of groups I still need to reach out to and say, what, what are some of those issues I should know? Because uh, I'm, you know, I'm in, Indiana- in Indianapolis a lot, um, but it's important to connect and make sure that I'm really uh, being sensitive to issues that impact not just Bloomington, but Ellettsville and the rest of the county and the rural parts of the county as well. So I know you've been uh, affiliated with the uh, Indiana Democratic African-American Caucus. Mm-hmm. What kind of issues uh, have you been hearing from African-Americans uh, during your listening tour? Well, I think we've uh, talked about uh, issues of affordable housing, uh, issues with, uh, with criminal justice. When it comes to education, um, not just funding, but also about um, the impact uh, our disciplinary systems have on on students. That's something we've talked about, as you know. Um, and I think that um, those are things that we've got to dig more into and 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 figure out globally. And how do you how do you get the rest of the state on board with an issue uh, such as you know the, the uh, Democrats in the Senate today released their their agenda for the legislature, and that's um, one of the issues is to decriminalize small amounts of marijuana. And so when you're looking at at uh, 
charges and and we, we, uh, within the criminal justice system we've got to think about how those issues impact not just the student body but the african-american community and all communities uh, with the issue of affordable housing we've just gone through that discussion here this week with plexes uh, in the neighborhoods and so that's a climate change issue it's a housing issue it's it's an issue that does impact uh, the african-american community as well one of the statistics you gave me william is that you know uh, african-american population is just about five percent here in Mary, or in monroe county but it's you know the um uh, it's about 15 percent of public uh, of public housing and 25 percent of section eight and so those are issues that are really prevalent in the african-american community we've got to be sensitive to those and listen and make sure that we're looking at a policy and how it impacts everybody in the community not just one piece and that's it's tough sometimes but you've got if you're going to listen get out get out there and understand what everybody is 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 uh is bringing to the table and figure out where the best uh, direction is to go and that's what we have to do and that's what i'll do as a senator now, as a chair of the Indiana Democratic Party, you've had occasion to interact with members of the IBLC, the <coughs> Indiana Black mm-hmm. Legislative Caucus. Right. Uh, what type of conversations or, or what type of prevalent topics um, do you wish to champion that they're getting behind? Sure. I think um, one of the uh, two things that come to mind um, are the issues of... Uh, of uh, the opportunities that minority and women-owned businesses have with state government contracts. That's one issue that the, the Black Caucus is very engaged in, as well as health care. I think health care is a, is a huge topic. We've been through a pretty tough time uh, with health care in Indiana since the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010. And, and moving forward to that, there was such a delay in getting more people on health care. And so uh, understanding, um, you know, one of our, uh, remember that the, the uh, chair of the Black Caucus, Robin Shackelford, is a is an old friend of mine. We used to work together, uh, and she is very engaged in the Minority Health Coalition and understanding what those issues are in the community um, and making sure that we are uh, expanding access to affordable health care, but making sure that we are looking at, at, at specific issues that might impact the African-American community. The uh, Healthy Indiana uh, Program, or HIP, mm-hmm. is that meeting the need, or is it is it deficient? Well, HIP 2.0, as it was called in, uh, uh, under the Pence administration, it was, it was delayed unnecessarily, I think. Um, and so when states decided to expand Medicaid, um, Governor, now Vice President Pence, decided he was going to do it his way. And in my opinion, that, that delayed 400,000 people being able to get on uh, health care. And there were some people that, that are falling between the cracks. And so... I think it remains to be seen whether it's getting the job done. It got the job done more, I should say. It gave more people access to health care, but, um, but the job's not done yet. There's still a lot of people that, even if they're insured, you know, what are health care costs? Uh, what is their access to it? How long does it take them to access health care? And I think that's a really important thing to think about uh, with uh, prenatal care uh, in our rural parts of the state and also um, uh, the affordability. Just for our listening audience, we're speaking with... Uh John Zodi, current chair of the Indiana Democratic Party and candidate for state senator. So, John, um, we interviewed state senator Eddie Melton mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, and he talked quite a bit in detail about uh, education, mm-hmm. specifically uh, teacher pay. And it seems like some of the uh, uh, issues that you're interested in, like four-year-old, four, giving four-year-olds access to pre-K, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it, that was 
I think probably a larger f- switch, Clarence, that was that was flipped when I worked for uh, Governor O'Bannon in the state house. One of his his big agenda item was a full day kindergarten back then. That was, was in the early two thousands, and we spent a lot of time on this. And I was uh, on his communications team, so I was the one sort of trying to churn out the message and say why you know what why is early childhood education valuable, and just really became a. Uh, uh, subscriber early on about early childhood education and you know I wasn't a parent then but there's a, a number that he always talked about and we used a lot which was 90% of a kid's brain is developed by the age of four so if you look at that all the information that a four-year-old and prior to that absorbs every time we don't have accessible early childhood education and affordable early childhood education we just miss a whole generation of kids right and I just that to me is where it all starts. You know, we, we, with a kid's education, if they miss that opportunity, you never get those years back. And um, I think people like Senator Melton and the Senate Democrats and our Democrats in the state have spent a lot of time trying to put forward a, a program that is universal, having universal pre-K. Um, and now that I'm a parent, I've got kids and, you know, great for us that we can afford preschool for our kids, right. like awesome for yeah. the Zodies, right? But right. there's so many people that may not be able to, and it's still really expensive, right, for us. And so there has to be a way for us to make that program bigger. Uh, it serves just a fraction of kids. They expanded it in the budget last year, but why isn't it universal? Why can't we make that more of a priority for kids? Because you don't get those years back. I just can't mm-hmm. say that enough. And so... In the, in the realm of public education, trying to get enough funding out there to adequately fund public education. And it, it, the earlier you start, the better students you have down the road, in my opinion, right? They're, they're learning to read sooner. They're learning to write sooner. They're learning to socialize sooner. Um, and it doesn't mean that a public pre-K program is the only answer, but making sure that kids have that opportunity for early childhood education is critical. And with uh, all-day kindergarten mm-hmm. and uh, pre-K for four-year-olds, that kind of solves part of the problem for child care, mm-hmm. uh, especially with uh, single-parent families yeah. and, and two-parent uh, households that are both working, uh, you know, all these different hours. So when you're talking about children uh, before pre-K, what, what, what are some of the things that you would push for to address child care? Sure. Well, I think it's... Um a, a couple of things. There's the basic, you know, expanding access to child care, whether it's uh, looking at tax credits and things like that, that can give people an incentive uh, who, to afford better daycare. I think that's one, a direct step, right? Um, the other, maybe a little less in, uh, direct, is the accessibility and the, uh, the prevalence of daycare. Um, here in Bloomington, uh, there's a wait list for a lot of places. We experience that as parents. And I think the other thing is the economics of it. And um, we talked about wages and how many jobs are people needing to work. And if you're, you know, your spouse is working one job during the day and you're working at night and, uh, or your work schedules are off, how does that impact? I think that's something we have to look at too, because, uh, some people don't work because they want to stay home with their kids or need to stay home with their kids. And then the, the fourth thing would be education, right? What are, what are opportunities there for people who want to pursue a degree? Um, and I think, our education systems, uh, higher education systems, have done a good job about uh, scheduling things so that people can take classes when you know it, maybe in a non-traditional time uh, where they might be able to have a caregiver come at night and take night classes and things like that. We've I think we've there's always been some flexibility there, but there are a lot of ways to address it. But I think the most direct way is to look at those child care tax credits and uh, and see what we could do there. Uh, but also it's a it's a it is an economic issue if somebody can't afford it or they're working too many jobs and they can't be home with their kids. 
you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking of some of the things that I went through uh, with, with my girls and just trying to make sure that they're getting the very best quality uh, pre-K and, and, and on to school mm-hmm. uh, somewhere, private or public. Um, we haven't talked about charter schools. Mm-hmm. And in Bloomington, Bloomington in particular, what's your view of charter school schools? And now, uh, here's a disclaimer, everyone. Bloomington is a unique community. You're liable to find any and all types of experimental school systems or whatever in the city. But what's your view on charter schools? Biggest thing with charter schools is the <laughs> accountability. Um, you know, public school or charter schools, people say are public schools. Uh, there's a charter school board and all of that. But the issue is that um, they aren't held to the same standards as, right. as traditional public schools. I think that's a big issue for us to, mm-hmm. uh, to continue to address. Also, the funding. Um, uh, mechanisms, uh, something that's become prevalent in the General Assembly over the last few years is how public education is funded. You don't hear a lot about, you hear a lot about K through 12 education and record funding for K through 12 education, uh, but the Republican supermajority isn't as transparent on telling you where that goes in the buckets of traditional public schools, charter schools, and the voucher program. And so we've got to be really uh, mindful of how public schools are impacted by uh, the redirection of of that money, and if 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 a if a system of schools are not held to the same standard as others, I think that's a problem. So when you talk about uh, school funding, um, the drain on public funds, uh, the diversion on public funds away from uh, the public schools to the charter schools, how long? You know, if we continue on that path, where do you see the future of public schools in Indiana? Because they clearly cannot uh, <clears throat> continue to to um, operate the way that they would like to mm-hmm. if those funds keep, you know, just continue to be diverted to charter schools. Where, where do you see the future of public education? Well, I think it gets harder. I think you've got continuing, you know, teachers, we've got so many stories here that teachers um, deserve to get paid more, um, but they're still really dedicated to the profession, right? You've got people making less than they should, but they're still dedicated teachers. You know, how much money are they spending out of their pocket on uh, school supplies? How late are they staying? My mom taught school in an elementary school for 40 years. I watched it, uh, you know, and how much time she spent. And uh, it's not an eight to five job, right? And your kids, uh, you know, she had her own kids and then her school kids. And you just, I I think the more stress you put on teachers um, and the systemic lack of funding just can, will put stress on them that they're not maybe even seeing yet. And I think we've got to be, uh, I don't think it's headed in a positive direction if we don't continue to, or if we continue to not fund public schools the way they should be. Uh, about 10 years ago, there was $300 million cut out of public education in the 2009 budget. Wow. And it was never has been restored. In one year? Yeah, in, 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 in that budget cycle. So the 2000 budget that was passed in 2009, I believe. And that's never been restored to public education, right? It just continued to uh, sort of, it, it was stagnant and then the voucher program came online and it just started being more diffuse as the years went on. And that's never really been restored to public edu- to traditional K through 12 public education. Let me be very specific about how I describe it because they'll say K through 12, this is our traditional public schools. And you see, you know, you see schools closing, um, you see uh, administrators um, 
looking at ways, you know, how are we going to spend money? What are we going to fund the building? Or, or what are we going to do with this, that, and the other? And at the same time, you see teachers still still struggling. I have a friend that I grew up with that was a teacher and left, and uh, he this was around the era of Tony Bennett. And uh, the, the he's like, the paperwork is just, I mean, what we have to do outside of teaching is just this endless paperwork and endless this and endless that. And we're just not giving the teachers the flexibility they deserve, I think. And so if you put... All of the if you if you put on top of that a, a continued decrease in funding and you're stressing out the school corporation more and more, I just don't think it's going to head in a positive direction. So we've got to do better. And then you add on <coughs> top of that the continual training for teachers mm-hmm. to uh, work with uh, not special needs children, but but children that are just displaying things that need attention, that need patience, that mm-hmm. need. Um, artful diplomacy at times right. um, and, and you can't just label a kid one way and, and that label may follow them for a number of years right. and that, that's been a complaint but uh, you, you need to have funds or resources available or maybe a teacher's aide or someone else in right. the room to assist a teacher years ago it was uh, the information highway, digital information highway arriving at every school, hopefully we've, we've overcome that burden um, Possibly, but but now it's going to be we're going to a more intellectually enlightened age, and we got to get our kids ready. Right? Um, do we do such things as extend the school year? Are you an advocate of that? I I don't know if I am, Clarence. I think the uh, schools do alternate schedules, so uh, you know they do a more traditional time where they're uh, the you know the, the the summer is shorter, but you have longer breaks, and so I think that seems to work well. Um, I think school districts making those decisions locally is a good start mm-hmm. uh, based on what mm-hmm. works best for them because um, I know they just have different. My sister uh, teaches at the New Albany Floyd County School Corporation and they have a different schedule than the Martinsville schools do and Monroe County is a lot of, uh, kind of goes with IU and so I think it's, it should be a local decision. Um, the state standard of you know 180 days is there. Um, whether that should be extended and how much, I think I haven't studied that in depth. Um, I don't think it ever hurts, but I think you want to be mindful of what other activities students have access to when they're not in school too, right? right? right. So, and that, that, goes, that goes back to the communities, right. either before school, after school, during the summer, the breaks, um, how that impacts a parent's work schedule. Uh, I think all that makes a difference. And then trans- transporting kids to school. That's right. Uh, well, a few years back, we had gone through discussions as far as, you know, just having providing bus service yeah. in some, uh, some areas. And um, all these are issues that if we had, of course, the ideal situation, there was this purse that had deep pockets you could reach in and get hundreds of millions of dollars, it'll be solved, but that's not the case. So then how do you prioritize? Um, how do you pri- prioritize what need is going to supersede all the others? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's the, the first need is the kids and what they need, what, what are the instructional elements they need, right, to do the very best they can in the classroom during the day. And that comes down to teachers, comes down to class size. Um, and then I think a very close second is is the accessibility of, the, of education. That comes down to transportation, which we've struggled with, uh, as you mentioned. And I think also um, we're seeing kids who may not have um, internet capabilities at home, right? And as everything, as everything becomes internet-based, you know, you hear these stories around the state about you know, the best internet's at McDonald's. And, you know, I hear kids in other parts of the state going to McDonald's to do their homework because it's it's slow at home or they don't have good cell phone service. And there are places in this state, you know, I've been to every county in this state and it's it's pretty varied. So 
a very close second is what kids need what kids need to actually survive and thrive in, in school but uh, they those have got to come uh, pretty close uh, succession to one another and, and it's tough it's very tough to right. prioritize but you've right. got to have uh, you've got to make sure that if a kid is in school that they're given all the tools what what is going to help them succeed that day that year and that comes down to a good teacher and good materials uh, tomorrow as you mentioned there's red for red mm-hmm. up at the state house what impresses you about it um, if you were to look in the future, what do you think may come of that? Uh, do you agree with all the points that they're trying to raise, or what's your thought on Red for Ed? Uh, I think it's great. I think um, teachers mobilizing. You know, the the last the largest rally that ever happened at the state house was in 1995 when um, the general assembly was going to repeal the 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 prevailing wage law, and so members of organized labor came from around the state, uh, got that stopped. Uh, and then uh, Democrats took the General Assembly back in the in the 1996 elections. This is a similar function where people are they're canceling. School districts have decided, made those local decisions to cancel yeah. school or not, uh, and have their teachers go to the state house um, to advocate for not just pay, right? Because all what pay is wrapped into is 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 school funding, mm-hmm. and we're talking about public education here, and that is the great equalizer, right? And so. I'm impressed by the level of activism and the grassroots activism that did not just for tomorrow, since the budget was passed in uh, May or April, late April of this year, uh, teachers have been out everywhere. For instance, the governor has been around the state. Teachers have been there to talk to him about this. They have been active for a good uh, nine months here. And I think we're going to see that, that uh, culminate tomorrow and continue on uh, mm-hmm. through next year. Okay. Um, when you, um, decided to to launch your campaign mm-hmm. um, you know it takes money to run a uh, campaign and and one way to raise money is through endorsements mm-hmm. so uh, who are you hoping to get endorsements from uh, individuals or groups well I think I you know, have reached out I've started to reach out and continuing to reach out to groups here in, in the community um, obviously this uh, first I would need to get the Democratic nomination and so I'm starting with uh, with Democrats in a lot of ways, Democratic organizations uh, within the party here. Monroe County's got a very vibrant uh, Democratic party. So, uh, and uh, just being a former vice chair here and an active Democrat myself, I'm I'm familiar with what those organizations are, uh, become reacquainted with some of the leaders, uh, been introduced to some of the leaders. That's, you know, the Stonewall Democrats, the Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus, uh, Democracy for Monroe County, the Democratic Women's Caucus. All of those groups uh, have people I know in them, but I am getting reacquainted uh, as a candidate here with with those groups. And so um, I would hope they would all endorse me, but I know it's something that has to be earned uh, if they do endorse. Um, There are a lot of community organizations that I'm starting the process to reach out to that I think it's really important that uh, in, in seeking the nomination, there's a lot of a lot of issues in the community I need to become familiar with, so I'm you know going to be reaching out to uh, uh, our higher education entities, uh, our business advocacy groups, uh, the prosecutor, you know, our, our elected officials, and just sort of going and saying what should I be aware of, what do I need to be uh, sensitive to, and just putting all that information together and and helping that fill out you know s- uh, some of the issues I mentioned in my press release because I think it's about listening. I don't know everything, don't have all the answers, and would never claim to. You know, I know enough to know I don't know everything, and I think that's a good way to go about this. It's This is a humbling experience, and um, the best thing I can do is just sit down with somebody or a group of people and listen and see where we agree and where we don't. And I've done a lot of that over the years. Uh, I worked working for elected officials as a staffer. You 
you know, they can't be everywhere. So sometimes you have to be where they aren't. And um, I've been, I've sat across the table from a lot of folks over the years and listened to why they agree or disagree with something my boss did. And so I've, I think I have an ability to empathize and, uh, you know, uh, come back to them with the other perspective uh, and then just hear them out. And I, so I think that's that's where I'm going to start this, where I have started it. Do you have an opponent yet? Uh, not that I know of, uh, no. Yeah. <clears throat> well, one thing uh, you, you sort of touched on was sitting across from someone who may not agree with you. Yeah. And you really see the measure of a man or woman to how they react when someone is being critical or someone has an opposing view, especially when it's something you passionately stand for, but mm-hmm. yet someone has a countering uh, view. Uh, are you going to be able uh, on day one to reach across the aisle yeah. and work with colleagues in the state house and form uh, working coalitions, uh, supporting their legislation, they in turn supporting yours? That's the perfect world. I don't know if that's been demonstrated a lot in the state house, but right. but but you you have the formula to make that work, right? So so share what's your approach to, yeah. to doing that. Well, I think the first place I would start is I mean look. Uh, the, uh, this seat is currently held by a Democrat and Mark Stoops. We have uh, Representative Matt Pierce, who's great. But then everybody else that uh, whose district includes Monroe County is a Republican. And so I think it's incumbent upon the senator from this area, uh, hopefully being me, to talk to them and figure out ways we can work together, right? There are, you know, there's a lot that happens up there that is non-controversial. And there are going to be issues that we, we're just going to be opposed uh, to, but we don't have to be disagreeable about it. Uh, you know, I know Senator Cook, I'm acquainted with him just over the years. I think, you know, I got to know Eric Cook because we used to be at a lot of parades together. He'd be walking in a parade for himself and I'd be walking for Baron Hill. And so you just, there is a uh, an acquaintance you develop with people yeah. across the aisle. Uh, you know, I obviously don't work with Republicans a lot now in my job as chair of the party, but uh, that would be in a different role in the Senate. And you just, you find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a man of my word. Um, and that is, I think trust goes a long way. Uh, you develop trust by just opening the door and saying, hey, uh, what do you think about this? And and I think I would hope that uh, Republican colleagues would would, uh, would feel the same way because our, our common interest is Monroe County here. One of your um, uh, former representatives from from the Martinsville area, who I was really close with and just worked with and getting some legislation passed through to support the university was uh, Jerry Bells. Uh-huh. Yep. And and I just, he was a maverick of sorts, but yep. he knew how to work in concert with uh, Mark Cruzan and others yep. to, to get things done. And sometimes it's it's realizing that, that your issue may have to take uh, a back backseat to something that that's more pressing but knowing that when it's time you ha- you you have the support of right. your colleagues and, and that that's important it is um now mentioning those that once served and those that you once worked with or worked for to support mm-hmm. have you reached out and have you heard from them as far as uh, pearls of wisdom as you as you move forward with us i have i've talked to a lot of folks uh, who've served uh either an elected office or currently are an elected office and just gotten advice from them. And these are folks I've known for a long time. And, um, and, uh, the advice is, uh, just, you know, do what you've done and get out there and go for it. Uh, it has been the common advice I would say. And, and, you know, no one knows in politics how things are going to shape up next week or tomorrow, right, but, and right. they all know that I think they, the wisdom from them, these, these folks have been mentors to me and, um, 
you know, I'm sort of a person that likes to have all your ducks in a row and, and likes to know what's going to happen tomorrow and you just can't. And so it's been a learning experience for me over the years to learn from these folks and, and their ability to take things as it comes, I think is, is a big part of politics and that's something I've learned. Now I'm likely to, to pick up the HT one day and see that someone who may have held the highest office in the land may be in town. Mm-hmm. Stomping for uh, John Zodi. So <laughs> <laughs> after he, of course, appears here to bring it on to give an interview sure. yeah. that, that you'll help us That's with. Right. That's right. Yeah. Glad to do it. So one of the other uh, issues that you wanted to address was fighting to ensure that every single Hoosier feels safe, secure, and protected equally under Indiana law, mm-hmm. regardless of gender, race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's a tall order. So where, where exactly do you start? And uh, if you were to focus on one of those, would it automatically impact the other? I don't necessarily think so, if I'm understanding the question correctly, William. I think, you know, we started um, the movement. I think that this has been an issue, a debate for a long time now. And I think a lot of people feel that it culminated around the RIFRA controversy, uh, you know, back in 2015 when Governor Pence, um, you know, pushed RIFRA and there was the huge national um attention that was that was given to that and then yeah, we he had stepped a, in that one didn't he? he did and and so you know we had a hate crimes uh, law that was passed last year that still wasn't inclusive it left out a number of categories and gender identity was one of those and we just have to be in a place where we believe that people should be treated equally under the law um and i know that the the, the sometimes that's hard for people to to get there right and you saw that in the general assembly where people just couldn't get there um but we have to get there. It's this is uh, we, this is 2019. Um, we are a welcoming uh, community. We need to be an equally welcoming state. Um, people should not be uh, worried about their own safety based on who they are uh, in any respect. Um, and so, when you can still not get services or housing or employment and have to worry about those kinds of things because of who you are. I just think that that is a, a setback that you shouldn't have to be uh, confronted with. And I just think it's, um, you know, I've said uh, for a long time, and uh, you know, I'm a Democrat because we all do better when we all do better. And we can't all do better if we're not treated the same. And I just am a firm believer in that. And I just, uh, I don't think we can come off of that. Did you make that up? No, I didn't. That was a Paul Wellstone. Uh, uh, Paul, Paul Wellstone, who was in the Senate from Minnesota, said that. And that is, I just think that is the, somebody asked me once why I was a Democrat. And um, I, uh, a lot of us, uh, you know, I know I have a friend, my good friend, the chair of the Minnesota Democratic Party, says that all the time. And I, you know, I just don't know a simpler phrase for why I'm a Democrat. But I, I, I think like it's a great though. one. I, I really yeah, we like all do better when we all do better. It's just a great. <laughs> thing because that, that's your belief if that's your goal right, right right you can't help you can't do everything for everybody all the time but you know that, that the direction you're in is when we all do better we all do better and i think that says it will, will you be the first senator or will you be not probably the first but will you be the senator to get this done please correct indiana's daylight savings time <laughs> oh i'm not getting uh, to that one tonight <laughs> i mean it, you get off work now it's like pitch black and you're thinking what what time is it you're going to work it's it's still dark and and now we're into this you know just this the season of well seasonal affective disorder and a lot of people are probably <laughs> suffering from that but uh that has been the most frustrating thing. And I understand there was a time when it was necessary because we had a lot of um, farmlands and, you know, mm-hmm. people 
you know, school days were different then. Right. Some some kids only went so far, but are, are we near correcting that or? No, I don't think we are. Wow. I don't think it's, I think it's right. here to stay right now. I, I wanted to so. ask that question. Yeah, no, it's a good question, but uh, I still have relatives that don't change their clocks, though. I will say that. They just leave them. <laughs> really? like, they just <laughs> they're right twice a year, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> we change ours at home, but yeah. Um, and then I see also one of your platform uh, planks is fighting to protect the environment yeah. in our state with a focus on statewide sustainability. Mm-hmm. Can you go into that, please? Sure. Glad you asked. You know, I, this is something, um, this, and this is something I do want to talk a lot more in the community about with leaders. We do sustainability really well. Uh, you know, uh, the, the city of Bloomington has an office of sustainability. IU has an office of sustainability. One of my internships in college was at the President's Council on Sustainable Development, and that was in 1998. And Bill Clinton created this council. And so when I went to DC to intern through the O'Neill School, um, I worked there. And I didn't really know what sustainable development was back then, but I learned a lot about it. Uh, And I think if we can address issues regarding the environment with a focus on sustainability, whether that's solid waste management or, you know, we have great solid waste management districts around the country, or around the state, excuse me. but. All of this goes into the environment with air and water and everything else. I think, um, what are our communities doing? What can we do at the state level to help people to encourage sustainability? And what is it? And how can we educate people more on what sustainability is? And I think that is an avenue by which you can get people on board with addressing a huge issue. because I think the the threat to our environment is existential, and that is a huge focus, not just for people in Bloomington, uh, but I know it's a big uh, debate here, but focusing on sustainability and how we can better uh, manage our environmental resources, I think is a huge opportunity for us because we have so many here. And it can be things as small as composting and recycling and all those, but how prevalent is that across the state? And I think that is something I want to dig more into and I think could be a really good opportunity for us. And I think it could get uh, bipartisan support because I think people want to see uh, their communities uh, thrive and be safe and sustainable and all of those things. But sometimes people just don't know what it is. And I think we need to, we can focus more on that. Yeah. Well, with so, the re- oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that uh, William probably has another follow-up question on that, but at some point I want to reserve some time uh, to talk about things on a more national level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'll, I'll defer to William for, for a final follow-up to what we've been discussing here. Well, actually, this kind of ties into uh, national politics, but another issue that you are concerned about is the right to vote mm-hmm. and, or the shrinking right to vote and, and yeah. then gerrymandering. Now, if you look at uh, races across the country, especially uh, state races, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty obvious that Republicans don't win uh, when everybody comes out to vote. Right. So if you take a look at gerrymandering and where they, they pick their voters, yep. and, and once they create this supermajority, um, I mean, you, you need a crowbar to pry them out of those uh, out of those majorities. So how do Democrats address that? And I'm only talking about Indiana now. Sure. Well, I think we address it by <coughs> continuing to push for independent processes on redistricting. Um, and that's something that the, the uh, Democrats in the Senate uh, released today as one of their platform issues is, is uh, a better process for redistricting because it's gotten so political and it's gotten so there's I mean, you can you can have software that can draw the districts, right? It's become so technical that you can draw them so specifically that you you could draw around somebody's house or they've got, there are certain rules, of course, that go into that. But I think it all does boil back down to the right to vote. And and this has become a major issue for me. not just as party chair, um, but I, you know, I teach a class on election law at IU, and 
Indiana, in my opinion, blazed the trail in the wrong way uh, on voting rights. We were the, one of the first states in the country to pass a voter ID law. It's still one of the strictest in the country. In 2005, there were 11 states that proposed voter ID laws. That's when we passed ours. Um, I think it disproportionately impacts um, minority communities. It has a disproportionate impact on, on income, on low-income individuals. Since that time, um, we have seen onerous laws passed uh, by the General Assembly. Um, then, at the national level in 2013, the Voting Rights Act was gutted uh, by the Supreme Court when they basically got rid of, of, of the preclearance system that had impacted, uh, you know, had been a major part of the civil rights movement since the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. And every year, the Democratic Party, and I've been, this is one of the proudest initiatives or actions, whatever you want to call it, that I've been involved in is protecting that right and trying to fight against it being diminished. And it's something that's not on the on the on the front page of the paper all the time. When it, when a bill moves to the General Assembly that impacts voting rights, it's not always covered, right? Um, no one listening to this show and no one in this studio has no longer. I'm going to talk about an issue that's passed this session. No one listening to this show right now or in this community, including no one in the state of Indiana, anymore has the right to petition a court to ex extend polling hours uh, on election day. Uh, the Indiana General Assembly and this Republican supermajority last year put in one of their bills. There's always a big bill that the Secretary of State wants that includes all the election stuff, right? The, the uh, election processes and deadlines and timelines and all that stuff. Well, in this bill, they removed standing from, from an individual to go petition a judge to extend poll hours. So if you go to a polling site, here in Monroe County last year, we had, we had poll hours extended, as you remember. It happened in two other counties in the state of Indiana as well. We, as the Democratic Party, petitioned a judge last year to extend polling hours in Porter County, Indiana, because of some malfunctions that had happened in the election. Those are done on behalf of voters that couldn't vote. The General Assembly removed your ability to have standing in court. The only body that has standing to do this in state court anymore is a unanimous vote of a county election board. And as you may or may not know, those election boards are made up of, of, uh, of partisan appointments, either one Democrat and two Republicans or two Democrats and one Republican. So that board has to now, a voter has to go to the election board on election day and say, hey guys, I was disenfranchised. Please vote unanimously and provide substantial evidence to a court so that they will grant a petition to extend polling hours. Now, that sounds really complicated, but it happened in real time on election day and in November 5th. We spent six to seven hours trying to get poll hours extended in Delaware County because three polling sites in Muncie didn't open on time. So we, I called and talked to the Republican County clerk personally, who was, I will say, was in favor of extending poll hours, but he had unilaterally decided to do that himself. He didn't either understand or didn't know the new law that had passed. Got the election board together. They voted unanimously. They had to vote twice because of the process they did or didn't do. At 4.30 that afternoon, a judge signed an order to extend poll hours in Muncie. That's one example of how they are throwing, they being the Republican supermajority, throwing hurdles in front of people's right to vote. They also, in the same bill, rolled back by four days the amount of time someone has to turn in their absentee ballot vote by mail application. Okay, so I've just, you can tell I feel strongly about this, <laughs> but it's because that's the fundamental right we're talking about here. I, right. You know, th this is why we do what we do, so right. people can get out and vote. And you just see it happen. You see um, 
systematic efforts, not just in Indiana, but across the country to uh, restrict people's right to vote. Uh, and that has to do with a lot of things. I think nationally it has to do with uh, the uh, when the, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act and got rid of a lot of preclearance requirements. Uh, here in Indiana, it's because we have a Republican majority that doesn't believe certain people should vote, in my opinion. And it's, it's, uh, it's disgraceful in my, in my estimation. So if, if you go to vote on Tuesday, mm-hmm. And there's a discrepancy, discrepancy either uh, with your ID, your address, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you can still go to your clerk and lodge a complaint, or is there a system in place where you can petition to have your vote? That you can vote and then perhaps sort it out after the election? Well, depending on the case, uh, you could vote a provisional ballot, and then right. you have to go back in ten day, within 10 days and and. Uh, sort of prove that that was you, right? So if right. you go in without an ID, they may say, here, you need to cast a provisional ballot, and then you have to go back and present your ID or, or affirm who you are. Mm-hmm. So there is a way to do it, but the counting of provisional ballots um, traditionally has not been great. Uh, there used to be a figure that only about 20% of provisional ballots get counted. I don't know what the the, the, the statistic is in uh, 2018, 2019, but they, there are a lot of hurdles uh, to get those done. So we never want to discourage people from participating, right? So I'm talking about this in a way that I'm telling you guys the policy ends of this. You never want to discourage people, but the only way this gets fixed is for more people to vote and get out there. And if there's long lines, you know, that means maybe we need more machines or maybe we need better systems or better training. And all of that is, is a, is a, a big piece of what we do. And sometimes it's not covered as well as it should be in the general assembly. Uh, and in my opinion, it's got to get covered because the, the, uh, the, uh, members of the democratic, uh, caucuses and the legislature fight very hard for this stuff as does the party. Uh, and so it's gotta be one of those things that we focus on. Uh, but it is tough cause we're talking about a lot of other things that are people feel are important as well you know people have to vote in numbers to to overwhelm gerrymandering but but that that's difficult in and of itself you you look at a state like north carolina Mm -hmm. that was probably redder than indiana but they elected a democratic governor right and then the state supreme court struck down some of the uh gerrymandering laws that the republicans passed right so do is there a path through the state supreme court in indiana to do the same thing some people feel there is. Um, some people feel there isn't. Uh, and so I've talked to several legal scholars um, that feel there is a path there. Um, we don't know what the path would be until uh, someone brings a complaint and tries to go through that um, that process. But you're right. The, there have been state Supreme Courts uh, in Pennsylvania, for instance, and in North Carolina that have, that have struck down districts um, based on state constitutional issues. And so there are some people that feel there is a path there, but uh, we don't have a complaint yet. Well, we, we have about <clears throat> about five to seven minutes left, and, and I did want to get into a conversation about things that uh, are, are unfolding. I can't wait. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at the national level with, with a particular impeachment inquiry. Um, it's like every day prior to this, every day there was some new situation, but mm-hmm. now there's some new revelation every day. And um, I just want to get your general thoughts on that. I mean, it's we can't look into the future necessarily, but right. boy, the facts are beginning to mount. Right. And you can't ignore that. No, you can't. And I think uh, the next step is making sure that the American public understands what those facts mean. Um, you know, we've, we have to be careful, I think, to not get, not us sitting here, but um, generally us, uh, 
you know, you have a lot of folks on on TV that will talk about the emoluments clause and right. you know foreign assistance and getting involved. And, and a lot of folks generally don't know what's okay and what's not, uh, what the Constitution says and what it doesn't. And I'm not saying that in a disparaging way. It's just hard. It's it's complicated, and people have their own stuff to do. Um, so I think the next step is making sure that people understand what this actually means. And I think that comes through the ways in which Donald Trump has, in my opinion, um, degraded the dignity of the office of president, where it's just people are um, wondering all the time, what does our government do? Do I trust my government? There's a, there's a, you know, always a chart in everything you talk about, but there is a de- been a decline in people's trust and their faith in government. And then Donald Trump comes in and uses that as a weapon to, he, he has weaponized people's faith in their, the government that is, that they form, that they vote on, that they are a part of. He weaponized that and used it against people to make a mockery of the United States government and the political process, in my opinion. That impacts people's willingness and enthusiasm to vote. It impacts uh, what people think of our Congress, which, you know, before Donald Trump, let's be honest, it, you know, Congress doesn't always have a great approval rating anyway, right, right. but it's worse because you have people who just think it's all funny and they can't make heads or tails of it. And we've got to be um, mindful of that, I think, when we look at this process and sort of sift through and say, what what actually happened here? Mm-hmm. The president, did he violate the Constitution? Did he violate his oath of office? You know, and, and what, always, what does this, what impact does this have on the, the reputation of the United States abroad? Because uh, already at home, he is sowing this discontent and this lack of faith and trust that people have in their government. And so, and people understand that and they see that around the world. And I think that is yep. extremely damaging, not just to us as Americans, if you're sitting here on the ground, but to our armed forces, our diplomats across the world, it's a huge impact on us um, in every way. And I think that is something um, people will come to understand a lot better as this proceeding continues. You know, time doesn't really permit us definitely within three minutes to, to just go down the laundry list of things. But just over the last every month seems like five months. Yeah. Uh, because things are just happening that are that are baffling. Uh, you just cannot wrap your mind around what is going on internationally, nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just the obstruction of not letting witnesses come to testify. Um, and I, I see I see all this coming to a head, especially as the, um, the impact of subpoenas and the threat of, of um, jail time, as we see those who mm-hmm. helped him in his campaign, a lot of them are going to jail. They have new residences now. That's right. They have new outfits that they wear. Right. Uh, so the, the threat of that, and, and there have been no pardons issued, right. uh, except for Judge Air Pale. Uh, right. <laughs> Sheriff Joe. Sure. Yeah. Uh, which, which is another show. But uh, I, don't, I don't know, John. It, it's, um, I put it this way. If, if people stayed home, in uh, 2016. I don't think they're going to stay home next year. I agree year. with that. I think there's a lot more. This is not a time to sit on the sidelines. I think it's 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 kind of exhausting. Like people are, I can you can kind of tell people are like, man, what's next? It's every right. morning you get up right. and there's something on Twitter, there's something on Facebook, there's something on the news. But this is a time, this is no time to sit back. And I think people understand that, but I think people are kind of, you know, I've seen this year in 2019, when we had local elections and people are kind of gearing up for next year because they know it's going to be so big. And this is no time to sit back. We've got to all be out there engaged. But, but registering people to vote yep. is going to be key. Yep. And encourage them to perhaps vote early. 
Mm-hmm. Don't wait to election day. That's right. Uh, I think uh, the gentleman you helped to get reelected would say, "Don't get mad. Vote and vote early. That's right. <laughs> and leave from here and go vote." Right. Yep. Uh, that may be the rallying cry because it's going to take that, along with more revelations, and along with you know Congress has you know under uh, Speaker Pelosi is, is 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 doing their due diligence. And, you know, throw the timeline out the window. Do your due diligence. Right. Because I think the longer the American public is is spoon-fed the facts, that they're going to begin to kind of understand and draw the dots and say, aha, like now it's not quid pro quo, it's bribery. Right. It's extortion. Oh, yeah, we all know what that means. So I think over the course of 2020, I don't know how long in or how deep into 2020 this will go, but uh, when it lands in the Senate, and when I guess Chief Justice Roberts, a Hoosier, will preside, mm-hmm. uh, then we'll see uh, what character really is over in the Senate. So that's right. That's my that's my soapbox for today. Well, I could say I think you know recognizing going back to those basic principles is what are the three branches supposed to do, and the Congress is exercising their oversight authority right now, and that's, that's right. One of the basics here. So well, Donald Trump has hijacked two of those branches. <laughs> well, and and we, we're definitely going to have you back. Uh, as your um, campaign unfolds. Um, but I'm so glad that you can carve out time tonight uh, to come on and, and, and discuss with us your passions. Have we left anything out, say, in the course of uh, 30 seconds, 45 seconds? Have we left anything out? I don't think so. I just appreciate you having me on. And my dog's name is Murray. You're Murray. My dog's okay. name. His <laughs> name is Murray. <laughs> of all, you know he's going to vote for you. <laughs> my, my dog doesn't have a name. <laughs> Okay, our thanks to John Zodi, current chair of the Indiana Democratic Party, for coming on tonight to talk about a variety of political topic topics, namely his aspirations for office uh, as state senator of Indiana's 40th district in 2020. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is Bring It On at WFHB.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is Bring It On at WFHB.org. And to keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you are invited to like our WFHB Facebook page. Simply go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit our news site at wfhb.org slash news. Once again, uh, our thanks to John Zodi, uh, the current chair of the Indiana Democratic Party, for coming on to talk about his campaign. And Hoosiers can get involved with the Zodi for Indiana campaign by visiting the campaign's Facebook and Twitter pages. Supporters can donate to the campaign by visiting the Zodi for Indiana Act Blue page. Hoosiers can also send an email to John Zodi, that's John Z-O-D-Y, at gmail.com to volunteer with the campaign. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department. Tonight's board engineer is Chantal LaFontante. Our original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. Tune in next Monday, November the 25th. Boy, well, November's almost gone at 6 Gosh. p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On. If you want to bake us a turkey, uh, you can send that to the station here at 108 West 4th, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. 
Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.